Good afternoon, good morning, and good evening, everyone. I am pleased to welcome you all to this special event, Tracking and Promoting Progress on Gender Equality, Emerging Trends, Challenges, and Opportunities from the 2022 Global Food 5050 Report, which we are proud to organize with Global Health 5050 and UN Women. My name is Hazel Malapit, Senior Research Coordinator at IFPRI, and I will be moderating today's session. Many thanks to all of you joining us live for this virtual Borlaug Dialogue side event, and thanks to those of you who are watching this recording. To participate in the Q&A session that will follow the speaker's remarks, please submit your questions on ifpri.org, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIFPRI on Twitter. <clears throat> The Global Food 5050 Initiative was established in the lead up to the 2021 United Nations Food Systems Summit in response to stakeholder demands for a global food system that is accountable for progress toward gender equality. This event will mark the launch of the second annual Global Food 5050 Report, which provides data and analysis on the gender and equity related policies and practices of 51 global food system organizations. Today's seminar will present a report's findings and explore how this accountability mechanism can empower a movement for more equitable, inclusive organizations across the food system. To get us started, we will hear from Johan Swinnen, Global Director of the CGIR Systems Transformation Science Group and Director General at IFPRI, who will provide opening remarks. And immediately following your video message, we will hear from Sarah Hendricks, Director for the Program, Policy and Intergovernmental Division at UN Women for her opening remarks. As we celebrate International Day of Rural Women and World Food Day, I am delighted to welcome everyone to this special event on the second annual Global Food 5050 report, a report which was launched at the UN Food Systems Summit. Around the world, women are key actors in every part of our food system. However, despite their highly integrated involvement, women are often undervalued, unpaid and overlooked. We know that women and girls bear a disproportionate burden of shocks and these impacts can be passed down to future generations. Current crisis responses do not go far enough to address these consequences. On the brink of COP27, as the global community comes together to design, to implement and to monitor crisis responses, these solutions must provide resources to help women and girls cope with crises in the short term and to challenge the systems that perpetuate inequality. Last year, in our foreword to the inaugural report, Amina Mohammed, the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, challenged all of us to, as she said, seize the momentum that has emerged through the UN Food Systems Summit process and use this to elevate the voices of women in food systems and correct structural gender inequalities. IFRI is committed to heed this call. And our partnership with Global Health 5050 and UN Women is a testament to our joint commitment to action. Last year, we launched this initiative with IFPRI partnering with Global Health 5050. This year, we are very pleased UN Women has joined us. UN Women plays a critical role in advancing gender equality, and we are excited to expand our partnerships and to bring in new data and new evidence. 
While the second annual Global Food 50-50 report reveals some progress on gender equality in the global food system, and this is encouraging, it also shows that representative leadership, particularly the representation of women from low-income countries on the boards of these organizations, is still very inadequate. When women are not formally represented in leadership and decision-making, processes of food systems organizations, it is not surprising that the policies and programs do not take their needs into account. Without diversity of gender and geography, decisions will not reflect the diverse set of perspectives nor needs and interests of a wider cross-section of the global population. Accountability mechanisms, such as the Global Food 5050 reports, are therefore critical to achieving gender equality across global food systems. I encourage all of us to use the data in this report to demand transparency from our organizations, to drive change to close gender gaps, and to hold those in power accountable for the right to gender-just food systems. In concluding, I would like to congratulate those who contributed to this important report. At IFPRI, we are very proud to have been part of this effort. Together, we can break down barriers and bring greater recognition to the millions of women playing a critical role in our food system. I'm so pleased to be with you as we launch the second annual Global Food 5050 report. UN Women is very proud to have joined this effort. And today we continue to celebrate World Food Day and the International Day of Rural Women with the theme, Rural Women Confronting the Global Cost of Living Crisis, which is deeply intertwined with the devastating global food crisis that is disproportionately impacting women and girls. We are amassing evidence that clearly demonstrates food systems embed multiple and intersecting forms of discrimination against women and girls, and evidence that women and girls crucially contribute to food security and nutrition, yet they don't reap the same benefits. Even in times of peace, women around the world and across all regions are more food insecure than men. And recently, gender gaps in food insecurity have actually grown. Latest figures for 2022 show an estimated 345 million people across 82 countries are facing acute food insecurity or at high risk and increase of almost 200 million people from pre-pandemic levels. This is even more pronounced for women, older and indigenous women, women of African descent, gender diverse persons, persons with disabilities, and those living in rural and remote areas. And now is the time for collective decisive action and accountability. And the Global Food 5050 is one such tool to start collecting that requisite data, build transparent models to monitor progress and hold actors accountable to advancing gender equality in workplaces, marketplaces, and communities. Through the Generation Equality Forum, UN Women is working with multiple stakeholders to address some of the root causes and conditions that perpetuate women's food insecurity through cooperative models and increasing women's access to 
and control over productive resources. Things like land, finances, services, market information, all key for promoting food security and nutrition for all. As we look towards COP27, we need to prioritize food systems and food system transformations that reduce dependence on fossil fuel-based fertilizers and other inputs, particularly in the context of the war-affected shortage and spikes in food prices. As well as feminist leadership and women's leadership, decision-making and participation, which we know makes food systems and its organizations more effective at all levels. The Global Food 5050 shows progress in this regard, but there is much more work to do with food system organizations to improve their gender equality practices. UN Women is hungry for gender equality. As the title of this second Global Food 5050 report aptly states, and we stand ready to work together with all those who are advancing transformative change to our food systems. Thank you so much. Many thanks to Yo and Sarah for their remarks. I now have the pleasure of introducing our keynote speaker, Ambassador Gabriel Ferrero Ideloma Osorio, Chairperson of the United Nations Committee on World Food Security and Spain's Ambassador at Large for Global Food Security. We are delighted that he has joined us today and we very much look forward to his remarks. Ambassador Ferrero, the floor is yours. Thank you very much indeed, Heiselland. Friends, friends, colleagues, uh, ladies and gentlemen, I'm delighted to join you today and celebrate the launch of this second Global Food 5050 report. So first, congratulations. Congratulations to all the team, the Global 5050 initiative, to the CGIAR and DIFPRI and UN Women, two key long-standing partners of our UN Committee on World Food Security. I have now have the honor of sharing Congratulations for an excellent report. And uh, this report comes as a, at a crucial time for at least two reasons. First, as was, it was just said by Sarah, the world is witnessing an unprecedented global food and cost of living crisis that is actually a human development crisis associated with the interlinked shocks of the COVID-19 pandemic, climate change impacts and conflicts including the war in Ukraine. And despite women and girls standing at the forefront of addressing this crisis, struggling to manage their multiple roles with related burdens, women and girls remain the worst affected. As it is often the case, women and girls sit least and last. Second, it comes at a critical time as we convened this last week in Rome, the 15th plenary session of the Committee on World Food Security of the United Nations. And one of its main outcomes was the agreement by all members and all the stakeholders of the committee to continue the work on preparing the voluntary guidelines on gender equality and women and empowerment story of women and girls in the context of food security and nutrition. And this, colleagues, is critical 
As you may already know, negotiations on these voluntary guidelines on gender empowerment and women's and girls' empowerment in the context of food security and nutrition did not conclude, unfortunately, in July as it was expected. And it comes at no surprise, this global agreement we are negotiating, member states are negotiating at the Committee on World Food Security, addresses all the structural issues of disempowerment of women and girls in the context of food security and nutrition. These voluntary guidelines aim at, are aimed at addressing the inequalities faced by women and girls to access land, financing, natural resources, and all the elements that are needed for the, an effective empowerment of women and girls. So this commitment from the members of the Committee on World Food Security last week is a welcome development. And I'm extremely well grateful to you and women for the support and the leadership you have provided in this process. We are grateful to receive a CFS 50 message by the Executive Director of UN Women, Ms. Seema Bauhaus, which was delivered in person by our dear Yemima Njuki. And we had the privilege of having Carla from UN Women accompanying all the negotiations and making it clear which is the advice we on women provides to the world on, where, on how uh, fostering women's and girl, women and girls' rights. So we count on your continued support to finalize these guidelines and promote their use thereafter. So it is my hope as the chairperson of this committee that soon during these coming months, not later than one year, the world will, will count and very especially women and girls in the world will count with an extraordinarily powerful empowerment tool, which is a global agreement where all the member states listening to you and women to the rest of the United Nations system and to civil society and the private sector have agreed on the key issues that need to be removed or done to empower women and girls for achieving food security and nutrition. So colleagues, this Global Food 5050 report is an extremely useful resource for us. It gives us reliable and rigorous evidence of prevalent gender discrimination in the global food system, where women are acutely underrepresented in the leadership of global organizations working on food security and nutrition. And once again, this is key. The report points to a very specific area of intervention that member states and other stakeholders can target. Using the CFS voluntary guidelines on gender equality and women's and girls' empowerment in the context of food security and nutrition once they are finally agreed by all. As I said, these guidelines will be an instrument to foster greater coherence among gender equality and women's and girls' empowerment and promote mutually reinforcing policy and programmatic interventions. So colleagues and friends, uh, notwithstanding some progress made over these years, which must, we must protect and guard jealously. It is regrettable that women's representation in the top positions of global food system organizations is still marginal as revealed by the 50-50 report. And as the report outlines, it is urgent that we create just and equitable agricultural food systems by encouraging women's leadership 
in those systems and in its organizations, developing workplaces, workplace policies, sorry, that enable women to thrive, and pushing outcomes that improve the food security and nutrition of women and girls. And all this should be done while addressing the root causes of gender inequalities. And accountability mechanisms, such as the Global Food 5050 Report, are an extremely important tool to guide us towards reaching this goal. And accountability is also one of the key roles of the Committee on Rural Food Security of the United Nations. So, colleagues and friends, with my participation here today, I want to reiterate the Committee's engagement in promoting policies and practices towards global food systems national food systems, local food systems that are firmly accountable for progress towards gender equality. So as the chairperson of a committee that serves as the multi-stakeholder platform, intergovernmental platform, that is well renowned for being the most inclusive governance body of the United Nations on food systems, now we are almost 140 member states we have count on the of the with the participation of not just the agencies based in Rome, FAO, IFAD, and WFP, but the rest of the United Nations system. We count on the CGIAR, the research and the academia community. We count on the international financial institutions that are part of the committee as well, foundations and other stakeholders. You count on the committee that will upon and their its deliberations will for sure address these systemic and structural causes through empowering women and girls. So once again, congratulations on the launch of this report and thank you for producing this report. I wish you all the best today uh, in your discussions and I very much, much look forward to continue your partnership with all of you in this critical period when we are all hoping to deliver these voluntary guidelines for the empowerment of women and girls and gender equality in food systems and agriculture. Thank you very much indeed, over to you. Thank you very much, Ambassador Ferrero, for that powerful message uh, and for um, reminding us that uh, accountability is indeed one of the key roles of the CFS and that CFS continues its commitment to gender equality and women's empowerment. Um, so we now turn to the results of the Global Food 5050 report. So first, let's start with some context from Jemai Manjuki, Chief of Economic Empowerment at UN Women and was the custodian of the gender lever of the UN Food Systems Summit. And then following Jemima's brief introduction, we will then hear from Sonia Tanaka, Deputy Director at Global Health 5050 and Manager of the Global Health 5050 Collective, who will walk us through the key findings of the report. Over to Jemima. Thank you very much, uh, Hazel, colleagues, uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. It is really exciting for me to be at this launch of the second Global Food 5050 report and index to join colleagues from IFPRI and Global Health uh, 5050. I know it's been a labor of love from all of us and it's really an exciting moment. Um, when we 
launched the first report at the UN Food System Summit in 2021 uh, during the COVID pandemic. I don't think either of us, any of us, imagined that we would actually be launching the 2022 report amidst another crisis, a food crisis and a cost of living crisis. And what I think is there are two common things between the COVID pandemic and this current cost of living crisis. They both have disproportionate impacts on women and girls. And so it is also very telling that we launched these two reports during those momentous um, crises of our time. Global Food 5050, as mentioned earlier, emerged out of the work of the Gender Lever of Change of the UN Food Systems Summit as one of five priorities to transform food systems so that they are just and equitable. The initiative monitors progress and holds food systems organizations accountable for achieving intersectional gender equality in leadership adopting gender equitable internal workplace policies, and implementing strategies that advance progress towards gender just and equitable food systems. One of my calls during the UN Food System Summit was that we had tried for too long with too many tools and processes to fix women, whereas women were actually not the problem that the problem actually lay in our inequitable food systems, institutions, and organizations. And so this report is actually a crucial tool for making sure that we remove the inequalities that are embedded in the institutions and organizations that govern our food systems. And so the primary aim of Global Food 5050 is to encourage food system organizations to confront and address gender equalities, both within their organizational and governance structures, as well as their programmatic approaches across the food system. And as the world faces unprecedented levels of inequality in who benefits from global food systems, this report takes an in-depth look at who actually holds positions of power and presents very rigorous evidence on the inequitable gender composition of boards that govern global food and the outsized presence of a really small number of nationalities in these decision-making processes. The findings are based on nine indicators that assess two interlinked dimensions of inequality. Inequality of opportunity in career pathways inside these organizations, as well as inequalities in who benefits from global food systems. The report includes 51 organizations that are part of a larger sample of 200 organizations that are part of the 2022 Global Health 5050 report. These 51 organizations range in size from 25 workers to hundreds of thousands of employees and are drawn from multilateral and bilateral organizations, nonprofit and non-governmental organizations, private for-profit companies, regional political bodies, United Nations bodies, funders and philanthropies, public-private partnerships, faith-based organizations, as well as research organizations. We hope that through Global Food 5050, that we can not only produce evidence to monitor progress, 
but ultimately that we can effect change towards a more gender just food system. Together with the Global Health 5050, Global Food 5050 is actually demonstrating its ability to catalyze organizational progress towards gender equality, fixing these institutional and organization uh, systems that perpetuate inequalities. So in other words, this is not just a report. We are looking at Global Food 5050 as an accountability, but also as a change mechanism that organizations can see their reflection in this index and actually strive towards change. As organizations, UN Women, uh, IFPRI and the broader CGIR community and Global Health 5050, we're looking forward to supporting food systems organizations in leading this movement towards uh, a gender equitable and human rights-based food system transformation that we know is not only good for people, not only good for just women and girls, good for everyone, but good for the planet uh, as well. And like access to food, we think of gender equality as not just about the policies and programs we have, but as a human right that we have to embed throughout the food system. I'm now going to turn over to Soja Tanaka, who will present a snapshot of the results of the 2022 Global Food 5050 report. Over to you, Soja. Thanks, Jemima. Uh, I'm going to be sharing some slides. Yes, wonderful. I um, well, th thank you, Jemima, and thank you to our, our distinguished speakers today and those joining us. Um, I'm really delighted to have this opportunity to explore the findings of our report with you. Um, so our report this year, we explored three main questions. Um, next slide. And that first question, as we've heard a bit this morning, um, who governs these global food system organizations? Who gets access to these rooms where a lot of power and influence is being wielded? Secondly, uh, how are organizations performing this year? We look at a core set of variables annually and which explore with what's happening inside of a workplace and how an organization is delivering their policies and programs externally um, and whether they're whether and how they're living up to their commitments to gender equality. And these two aspects we really see as, as, as inherently linked. We heard the, the DG from IFPRI this, uh, in his opening statement that the diverse representation who leads organizations is in this continuous dynamic relationship with the priorities and the policies of global food organizations and, and really how well organizations are able to, to advance food security and nutrition for all. Our third question is, um, with these two years now of data on the sample, uh, can we start to see the emergence of some trends in progress or possibly stagnation? And um, before I get to our results, I, I'll just touch briefly on our methods. We look at 51 organizations that are working in the food space. Uh, this, the data that we present is extracted primarily from publicly available sources. We, we're looking at how organizations um, publish and speak about the, their own policies and programs. We contact organizations a number of times throughout the process, and that's primarily to make sure we're getting our, our data right. But um, it also allows us to open up the dialogue with organizations throughout the process. Uh, we, in terms of the characteristics of the board members, again, that's gathered from publicly available information. 
and presented in an aggregate and anonymized form. Um, and then we heard from Jemima that this data is, is, is drawn from a larger Global Health 5050 report, which, um, which assesses 200 organizations. So we, um, we looked at the detail of, uh, in detail at the demographic information of board members across 24 organizations. Uh, next slide. And, well, while we're, we're working through that, I'll, I'll keep sharing. So we, um, we look at 24 organizations, which is a subsample of the 51 that are included in the report. And, um, and that's because we've excluded organizations with boards that are primarily composed of member state representatives. Like we see at the UN, for example, and we, we know that the composition of those boards are, um, are national representatives. It's the countries who decide who to send, who's sitting in the room, and, and thus the organization doesn't have a whole lot of say. Um, in, in the individual characteristics of the people in the room. And that's what we're interested in. We're looking at um, boards where the membership is based on individual experience and characteristics. Thanks, Alex. Uh, so 24 organizations, 347 people who are occupying 351 board seats. And this is the, the, the composition of that sample uh, drawing from six sectors. Next slide. So we, um, you know, while, while we're interested in taking a, a more intersectional view of diversity in these bodies, uh, what we are able to capture is limited by two key factors, really. So that's one data that's in the public domain. What can we find as independent researchers? Um, and so that's drawing on people's bios. And then two, what kind of data is globally relevant, what's defined and what's comparable. So now what we're able to capture at least um, you know, for now is uh, the intersection between nationality and gender. Uh, and so if we look at representation um, within the boards uh, of these organizations on the basis of the economic position of the country, we find a very high representation from, uh, of individuals from high-income countries. Seven out of 10 board seats are occupied by nationals of high-income countries. If we drill down to um, uh, individual countries, we see that one country alone is, is uh, home to four, nearly four out of 10 board seats, and that's the USA. Another 24% of seats are held by nationals of Europe, including the UK. And we compare this to just 3% uh, of those board seats that are held by nationals of low-income countries. So that's 11 seats out of 351. And then on the next slide, we, um, if we look at gender and nationality, we see even starker inequities. 40% of board seats are held by women. 73% um, of these are, are women from high-income countries. Uh, 22% from middle-income countries and 5% from low-income countries. And then if we zoom out again and we look at across those 351 seats, 2% are occupied by women from low-income countries. And then, uh, so that brings us to our next question of, of the report. Uh, the next slide, we have, um, with this glimpse into the demographics of the board members, we can now, 
move into um, examining how organizations are performing across this set of variables on gender-related policies, programs, and, and some outcomes. On the next slide, uh, this is the, the framework um, that we have um, that we've used in the report. This is uh, these are our annual variables that we return to uh, to track progress. We've got four domains here, the first being a commitment to redistribute power. So we're looking at organizations and whether they're making public commitments to gender equality in their missions, vision statements, uh, core strategies, et cetera. And are they defining what they mean by gender? Our second domain looks at uh, policies to tackle power and privilege imbalances within the workplace. We're looking for the availability of gender equality policies, DNI policies, and board diversity policies. Our third domain is uh, looking at the outcomes um, within the organization, the gender and geography of uh, who sits in senior management on the board and who occupies those highest levels of the, the CEO and board chair levels. And then finally, um, moving to the other, um, the other aspect of inequality that we're interested in is the, uh, whether organizations are applying a gender lens to the work that they, they deliver. So we look at um, the extent of the gender responsiveness of organizations, food programs, policies, and whether organizations are sex disaggregating their monitoring and evaluation data. Next slide. So um, I'll, I'll just go through a couple of the variables and um, there is, there's a lot more on the report. The first variable we look at is public commitment. And you see it's, it's very high. Organizations, um, the vast majority are uh, referencing gender equality and their commitment to advancing gender equality in their kind of core uh, operational documents. Um, and that's up to 96% of organizations have publicly committed to gender equality. Um, next slide. So do we see the, the translation of that commitment into workplace policies? For one third of the organizations, uh, the answer is no. Uh, we are unable to find any available workplace policies for, um, for a third of the organizations. For two thirds, we, we do find that there are policies and, and we're particularly looking for not just commitment to advancing women's careers equitably inside of the organization, but, um, but the specific measures that an organization is committed to and it's holding itself accountable for um, in realizing the commitments in, uh, inside of those policies. Next slide. We, uh, we similarly look at the availability of DNI policies and plans in the public domain. And we find that uh, just over half of organizations have plans with specific measures um, this year. Uh, and another quarter, we find commitments to advancing DNI in the workplace, but no actions or strategies um, or, or kind of concrete measures to advance those commitments. Uh, next slide. Uh, the, so this. Third domain that we look at is uh, the outcomes, um, the gender distribution in senior management and the governing bodies inside of these organizations. And um, on the senior management side, 
that we've, we've touched on the governing bodies, we see that uh, just over a third of organizations have reached parity. So that's defined as 45 to 55% of women are represented. Um, however, half of organizations are, uh, are still dominated by, by men. Half of senior management bodies are, are dominated by men. Uh, next slide. And if we move up a level then to look at the, the positions of uh, the CEO and board chair, we have uh, between, between all of these uh, positions, about 70% are occupied by men. And that hasn't changed at the CEO level in the last year. Although we have seen some uh, interesting, hopefully meaningful progress in um, uh, on the side of the board chairs. So a movement from 24% of women represented in last year up to 36% of board chairs um, that are women this year. Next slide. And then, so our final domain is uh, the, how organizations are um, delivering their, their programs and policies externally and the extent to which gender is incorporated into that work. And we do find a, a, an increase in the gender transformative programming and that's uh, the, the programs and policies that go beyond facilitating women and men to engage in the food system kind of within the confines of traditional gender norms, um, but actually, uh, seeking to address unequal power dynamics and transforming structural barriers. Uh, so next and final slide, I believe, yeah, I just wanted to conclude here by directing you to the Global Food 5050 website. Um, this is where you can find the scorecards for each organization, compare last year's findings to this year's findings for each organization. There's some filters, you can play around with the data. And so I really encourage everybody to explore and to use this data um, in your own research advocacy and, um, and actions in advancing gender equality in the global food system. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jemima and Sonia, for that overview. And, and as she said, please, um, you're very welcome to take a look at the full report on globalfood.org. Uh, um, we will now turn to our panel discussion with several experts who will share their reflections on the report and the way forward. But before we get to that, just a reminder that our Q&A session will follow after the speaker's remarks. And so we invite you to submit your questions on IFPRI, on IFPRI's website, um, Facebook, LinkedIn, YouTube, or by using the hashtag AskIFPRI on Twitter. So next, our first panelist is Mega Desai, Senior Coordinator at the Self-Employed Women's Association, or SEWA. Mega, you represent over 2 million self-employed women workers from the informal sector in India. From your point of view, um, which of these results from the report stood out for you, and, and how can this initiative help serve the needs of women who are engaged in the food system, such as your membership? Namaste, everyone. Uh, distinguished guest, um, respected ambassador, fellow panelists, and dear viewers. On behalf of 2.1 million informal sector women workers, we congratulate on launching of the second Global Food 5050 report. The report is interesting as it covers women and their internal and external challenges to be an actor in the food supply chain. 
our members also want to share something at this platform. So thank you, IFRI, for inviting us. Since last five decades, we at SEVA organizes informal sector women workers for twin objective of full employment and self-reliance. During these years, we have understood that women are backbone of an informal workers household and are shouldering the responsibility of fulfilling the family, food and nutrition needs. Informal sector women play a critical role in food supply chains. Small and marginal women farmers who grow for society, the food processors who clean the food, the vendors who supply food, the cook who make food, and the food waste pickers and fertilizer producers from waste. At all places, informal sector, women play a vital role in the entire food supply chain, but they are invisible force, unaccounted, unprotected. They are left out from the policies and benefits. Of the 2.1 million women members of SEVA, two-thirds are from the rural areas who are small and marginal farmers, fishers, or into animal husbandry. We run agriculture campaigns since 1995 to address why does farmer remain hungry. Farmers face major two challenges, climate risk and market risk. So um, our approach has been to treat farm as an enterprise and farmer as entrepreneur, so that agriculture moves from subsistence to a viable and profitable enterprise. This is through integrated approach of organizing, capacity building, technical services, agriculture, input access, and access to finance and market linkages, and forming economic enterprises on attaining maturity. SEVA has promoted women-owned and managed food social enterprises and bringing in technology and skills from to form a decentralized supply chain, which would link local producers to local consumers and treat informal sector women as equal partners in supply chain for food security, that is Rudy and Kamla. To address the climate risk, climate resilient practices in farming, adaptation of climate smart farming equipments through access to affordable finance and bringing technology in hands of women for just transition. Women face many constraints of which biggest are structural barriers and lack of land ownership and access to other resources due to patriarchal farming system and gender discrimination. This calls for the women-friendly policies and programs which can recognize women as worker and provide access to resources, finance, market, and in decision-making. We strongly feel an urgent need for action research aimed towards informal sector women workers in food supply chain for strengthening by ensuring decent work, just transition and ensuring living wages and un to understand how women make it a circular food system. The outcome can help design programs and policies which can strengthen agriculture, reduce migration, provide decent work and social security, and re reduce GHG emission to address climate change. Resilience building of a smallholder farmer and food system worker to absorb climate and market shocks calls for climate resilient fund for informal sector women 
which can help women farmers to avail immediate and affordable finance for resilience food system. This shall be affordable and repayments as per the supply chain. Lastly, as I mentioned earlier, Seva's experience says that informal sector contribution in food system is invisible but vital. So I would suggest a special study to be conducted on circular economy of food system, informal sector and women workers and report may be incorporated in this global food 5050 report. Thank you, namaste. Thank you very much, Mega, for those very important points, and especially on highlighting the constraints that are faced by the informal sector um, and the women who are working in this informal sector in the food system. So thank you so much. Um, our next panelist uh, is Martha Nyagaya, Country Director for Kenya at Nutrition International. Welcome, Martha. Your organization has consistently been a strong performer on integrating gender and gender equality in your programmatic work. And this year, there has been notable progress on diversity and inclusion within the organization. How has this helped to improve your approach when it comes to gender equality and women's leadership at Nutrition International? And what are some recommendations to ensure that Global Food 5050 is impactful to other food systems organizations? Over to you. Thank you, Hazel distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, and congratulations to the Global 5050 Initiative team. It's hard to summarize it all, so I will give a few highlights from both my head and heart, since this is a topic that I'm very passionate about. Let me start by reiterating that food security, nutrition, and gender are intimately interconnected. Every day women and girls experience poor nutrition disproportionately and 60 percent of the people with chronic hunger are women and girls nutrition international is increasingly recognizing the importance of promoting gender equality and women's empowerment and this is at the heart of our work ni's work is grounded on a global strategy and program on gender equality. We try to achieve an equitable, inclusive organization that confronts and addresses gender equity by promoting diversity in our governance structures, in leadership and decision-making, but most importantly, in our programs. This is evident in our board representation and in the way we design our programs, but, but most importantly, reflected in the beneficiaries of our work. Our staff are trained to understand the core gender concepts and the importance of mainstreaming gender in their roles. I want to congratulate the Global Food 5050 Initiative because it is possible to create rapid and meaningful change. And this is not just about ensuring women are represented. It is about ensuring that policies are developed and that we have programs that address gender inequities. We know that gender inequalities contribute to unjust food production, access, consumption, and ultimately poor nutrition status, particularly in women and children. I would like to highlight four recommendations from our practice at NI that will ensure the Global Food 5050 initiative is impactful to organizations. Uh, 
The first one is to include considerations for both food and nutrition security. And I will break down this a little bit. The second one is to support gender and sex-based analysis to be able to understand the gender gaps and constraints in programs. The third one is to design and implement gender transformative programs informed by such sex and gender-based analysis. And the final one is to ensure that monitoring, evaluation, and learning frameworks are designed with gender markers. So on the first recommendation to include considerations for both food security and nutrition, nutrition and food security approaches are complementary, but are not the same. Food security focuses on increasing the availability, access, and affordability of food at the household level. Nutrition security, on the other hand, focuses on nutrition needs of the individual and how their diet, gender, health, and life stage influences those needs. And that is why we advocate for approaches that are multisectoral. A blended food security and nutrition approach offers the most comprehensive, equitable, and gender responsive course of action. Such an integrated response will protect the vulnerable, especially women and girls, and put the building blocks in place for resilience and recovery of communities, of programs, of countries. The second recommendation is to support sex and gender-based analysis. And this is to be able to understand the gender gaps and constraints in programs. Gender issues are deeply rooted and manifest in, in many ways, in language, in perceptions, in attitudes and behaviors. And so it is very important that these gender inequities are influenced and, uh, and informed by good analysis. The designing and implementation of gender transformative programs must be informed by such analysis and documentation of most significant stories, such as evidence that is generated from this report. But most importantly, partnerships, partnerships, partnerships. These issues are interrelated and interdependent and cross-sectoral. So we must be intentional in working together to challenge policies, to challenge systems, to challenge interventions that do harm, and to invest in agenda-sensitive nutrition, food security programs that address inequities. It is not optional. The world's future depends on it. Thank you, Hazel. Thank you very much, Martha. Um, those are those are powerful um, recommendations, and and I'm here. I heard partnerships a lot, and and in how we all need to work together. Basically, we are these are all interrelated. So thank you for those for those insights. Um, let me come next to uh, our next panelist, Benjamin Davis, director of the Inclusive Rural Transformation and Gender Equality Division at FAO. Um, ben. FAO has also shown notable improvements in recent years, particularly around senior management representation, progressive and inclusive workplace policies, and gender transformative programmatic approaches that Martha was just telling us how important that is. How is this making a difference in how FAO works and what challenges and opportunities do you see coming out of this report? 
Great. No, thanks a lot, Hazel, and thanks really for the invitation and the uh, possibility to join you today. And first, I'd just like to commend uh, Global Health 5050, IFPRI, and UN Women uh, for publishing the report uh, for this year. It's, it really is a much needed uh, resource for the global response to, to gender inequality at the highest uh, institutional, institutional level. And I think it's clear that the, I mean, the, the, obviously the fight is not over. And as we heard from the ambassador, uh, even with the voluntary guidelines, um, they're still in a negotiation. Just want to thank the ambassador for his tireless efforts to, to uh, make sure that those negotiations continue because it's hard to under, under, underestimate um, uh, a situation we would have been in if, if those negotiations had failed, no? Um, but this fight isn't over and it needs to happen at all levels, really from the boardroom to communities uh, to within families. Um, you know, and you, you asked about FAO. I mean, I, the, I mean, FAO officially, let's say, recognizes the, the, the importance of, an, of the institutional culture and the environment of the institutional culture to um, achieve more efficient and inclusive uh, gender equal agri-food systems. You know, we have our FAO gender equality policy, and we're strongly committed to ensure uh, the gender dimensions are systematically mainstreamed into all our organizational functions from results-based management to learning and evidence and generation. We're monitored through the UN SWAP 2.0, uh, which is, I'm sure all of you know, is the system-wide accountability framework to mainstream gender systematically and measurably into all uh, institutional functions of UN system uh, entities. And as you said, we've actually been achieving over the, uh, we've been improving in our achievement over the years. And last year we met or exceeded 15 of, out of 16 key performance indicators, which is 95% <laughs> success rate, um, which is pretty good compared to 68% for the other specialized entities and 70% for the UN system. But I think most of all, it's pretty good for FAO if you consider what a historically patriarchal organization it is and it has been uh, given its you know, origins and ministries of agriculture and what have you. So I think it's, it is a big achievement in the, in the, in the, in the mainstreaming and um, uh, efforts. Um, in the last few years, we've been focusing a lot on gender responsive performance management, um, inclus including through employee recognition awards, et cetera. Um, but I, despite the success, I think in mainstreaming, um, we still have a lot of work to do um, continuously in terms of raising consciousness on gender inequality at all levels of the organization. Um, in terms of inculcating in people's consciousness um, and daily lives, it's about addressing social norms. It's about uh, gender transformation in our daily work you know, place. And I think we have to address it in our workplace before we can talk, you know, we can do it in our programmatic approaches. And so I, I, it's, it's very important to address that ex explicitly. And again, this is, this is a lifelong process, I think, for all of us. Uh, and we need to move on it in, in many um, dimensions. There's, there's really one area where we, even do, we need to do a lot more in terms of uh, structurally within the organization. And so while the representation of women has increased all the professional levels uh, in the last 10 years, gender parity, particularly at higher levels, P4 and above, uh, is, is a challenge. Uh, and this is precisely you know, a key indicator of structural inequality, let's say. Um, at the senior management level, we're, we're doing quite well. But when you look at kind of the middle senior, let's say, from the P5 through the D2s, uh, we're really struggling, right? And so this is where we really need to, to make an effort. Um, we've committed to um, 
uh, achieving gender parity at the professional level by, by this year and by senior positions uh, by, by 2024. And it, but it takes a big effort and it's not something you can just change. It's something you have to build on over time. Um, and so we're committed to um, achieving this gender parity um, and more in general, just having a gender responsive work environment free from sexual harassment, exploitation and, and abuse. And in terms of achieving the gender uh, parity, it's really about uh, um, HR policies. It's about preparing and supporting candidates and colleagues within the organization for senior roles. Um, and so this is an effort that we're that we're really focusing on. So we've made it. We I think we've been quite successful, but really have a long way to go, particularly just in terms of people's daily daily actions and daily minds and how they how they deal with this on very on very personal level. So. Thanks again. Again, this is a, the report is a very contribution for all our collective efforts towards achieving gender equality. Thanks. Great. Thank you so much, Ben. Um, it, it's great to hear sort of all the um, all the uh, achievements that are already there, but that that there is still quite a, a lot of work to do, I think, for all of our organizations. So thank you for that. Um, now, let me go to our final panelist. Uh, we have Maura Berry, Senior Deputy Assistant to the Administrator at the Bureau for Resilience and Food Security at USAID. Do we have Maura on camera? Yes, you do. Yes, uh, excellent. Maura, <laughs> welcome. Um, USAID has been an early supporter of this initiative and provided financial support for these reports. And for that, we thank you. How do you see Global Food 5050 contributing to the work you do in gender and food systems? And what role do you see for funders like USAID in advancing these priorities? Thank you, Hazel, and, and thank you for all of our previous speakers. I really uh, enjoyed hearing from everyone and just appreciate the opportunity to participate in, in the discussion that we're having today. It's so important. Thank you so much to all the organizers for pulling together this, this event. And of course, all of those that worked so hard on pulling together the first report, um, I think the vision in creating Global Food 5050 and drawing the lessons from Global Health 5050 was, you know, really spot on. And, you know, one year out since the launch of the first report, we can already see how much of an impact it's making just really listening to this conversation and shining that spotlight on what global food system organizations are doing to advance gender equity. You know, we know that this, this kind of a report really can help identify gaps and show progress and really offers us uh, organizations inspiration to take some concrete actions to, to improve and to be honest with ourselves, as Ben was just saying. You know, it's also a way for us to hold both ourselves and our partners accountable as we work to advance just and equitable food systems. And in the United States, the government recognizes, as I think we've all been underscoring, you know, that no one not just one person can thrive unless everyone is thriving. So as previous speakers already emphasized, gender equality and women's empowerment, we know help eradicate poverty, build vibrant economies and unlock potential on really a transformational scale. And this year, this last March was the one year anniversary of the establishment of the White House Gender Policy Council. The Biden-Harris administration had proposed last March a record $2.6 billion to advance gender equity and equality through foreign assistance in our fiscal year 2023. And that commitment will more than double the commitment that was proposed 
in our fiscal year 2022 budget. And we know that it will go a long way to further our work to promote prosperity, stability, and security around the world. But as the Global Food 5050 report makes clear, you know, we have to take a look at gender equity and equality within our organizations as well as in our programming. So this past March, I'd like to mention also that USAID announced the launch of its new Office of Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Accessibility. And that office reports directly to our USAID Administrator, Samantha Power, and it is leading efforts to advance diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, both in our workplace and in our programming. And the new office is elevating our attention to these critical issues, and it's helping us really better align and coordinate our agency-wide efforts. Um, and it's supporting the continued implementation of USAID's diversity, equity, and inclusion strategic plan that we have in place. And it's going to help USAID to continue to create more respectful, inclusive, and safe environments in its workplace and in its programs, um, and really goes a long way in supporting USAID's you know, critical work in terms of life-saving uh, global mission. In terms of our work on global food security, I think as we've all been discussing and are well aware, you know, this past year really was rocked by major crises and disasters across food systems from climate threats and drought, uh, countrywide floods to fast rising prices, uh, and deepening of food insecurity because of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And we know that women and girls are being hardest hit by these types of crises. We heard some stats mentioned already. Uh, just to throw out another one, we know that in 2021, at least 126 million more women than men were experiencing food insecurity. And we know that gap is continuing to grow. We also know that if women are not part of developing and implementing the solutions, our work will not be as impactful and sustainable as it could be. And so what I really like about the global health and the global food 5050 is not, it's not just a report, but it's really the process of getting there, right? Of getting that report together. It's really a process that facilitates change and improvement. And I think we can all take advantage of the resources for change section of the global health 5050 website. Um, if you haven't taken a look at that, take a look at it, it includes an assessment tool and how-to guides, and it really provides us all with tools for addressing change in our organization. And last year, a major finding of the report that we heard was the lack of disaggregated data on women and girls. And USAID has made this a priority for a really long time. And in fact, this year we marked the 10th anniversary of Women's Empowerment and Agriculture Index. And that is a partnership between the US Feed the Future Initiative together with IFPRI and others that has standardized how women's empowerment is measured and ensures that we are collectively focused on gender equality impacts that we wanna see. And we really appreciated the opportunity to contribute you know, to the production of, of that, those reports. And really uh, in terms of the question, you know, we need all governments and organizations right, to, to do this work and join us um, because without those kind of facts and figures, without getting the evidence behind it, we know that, um, how are we gonna know that we're making any progress? So our hope is that this Global Food 5050 will really become a, a permanent initiative so we can all continue to hold ourselves accountable and work towards improving where we're at. And it's, you know, it's great to, to see that the second report, of course, has already been kicked off. And definitely just wanna underscore that USAID sees this as a, a critical 
step in increasing transparency and accountability around all our food systems. Um, but of course, we can't do this alone. Uh, as we know, that's why we're all here in this group discussion. Uh, but we really need to, to uh, lobby uh, for broad commitment to gender equality uh, to make sure that our efforts can really take root. So put out a plea there um, that we can all be sort of uh, amplifying that um, everyone, you know, in terms of uh, whether you're a funder or an organization that's included in the report, you know, just to have more organization join us in supporting the growth and success of, of this report. Because we know that with the success of this report, um, it will help our organizations as well as our organization's ability to be successful in, in helping women and girls around the world. So thank you for, for the opportunity to participate in the discussion. Thank you so much, Maura. Thank you for, for reminding us that this is really more than just a report. I think we also heard that earlier from Jemima, but um, just reiterating, um, pointing to those the, the self-assessment tools and how-to guides that, you know, there, there's actually a lot more we can do. It's not just about the report, but about the change we can, we can, um, we can push for with this data and with this evidence. So thank you um, to all our panelists and to all our speakers for your insights, for your comments. Um, I think we now have some time to uh, engage with our live audience and our panelists um, will respond to as many of your questions as possible as time permits. Um, in some instances, we may try to consolidate your questions. Um, uh, so let me see, um, who do we have first? I think, let me let me start with, with Mega, um, who, who spoke first. Um, um, Mega, um, you passionately outlined how informal workers are invisible but vital to the food systems. Um, can you say more about some recommendations for how Global Food 5050 can, can serve the informal food system workers? Just a couple more points on that point. Thank you, Hazel. Um, what I feel is I have gone through the report and um, it talks about the formal uh, organizations, the studies on formal organization. So what we feel and what we recommend is we also need to add the informal sector women workers and their informal organizations, economic enterprises under the study and how they make a circular food system. I think that study is very crucial because um, in the uh, down south, the um, Asian and African countries, larger are the small and marginal women farmers who work in the food security, food supply chain. So a study is needed and that study can be a part of this 50-50 report. I feel that would be a great contribution for the informal sector women workers of food supply chain. Thank you. Thank you, Mega, for that suggestion. Okay, so um, let me go now to maybe, uh, oh, Jemima's back. Either Jemima and Sonia may also wanna jump in. Do we have evidence that women in leadership positions make different decisions than men on food security, nutrition, food systems, and gender equality? This um, is, yes, go ahead. Thank you so much, um, Hazel, and for that question. I, I think there's some evidence that we have that is very clear. One is that 
diversity, you know, gender diverse and diverse leadership in different perspectives actually leads to better decision making um, around some of the issues that actually affect, um, affect people. But also there is a lot of evidence that when you have gender diverse boards, for example, when you have gender diverse um, leadership and management, that you actually also can increase the productivity of the organization, you can increase the profitability of the organization, but you can also change the priorities of the organization because when you have diverse people across the table, they also bring diverse perspectives. And so for this reason, we really are convinced um, that we need more diversity in, in leadership, especially in food systems organizations, because that actually does make a difference in terms of the outcomes and priorities that organizations um, organizations make. The second thing I would like to say about that is that we also need to look at this from a, a rights perspective. If we have um, and, and we say this a lot, that uh, globally about 43% of the labor that is in agriculture and food systems is provided by women. We want to see this reflected in other aspects of the food system as well, so that we are not relegating women, we are not relegating other gender diverse groups to just certain parts of the food system. The, the food system actually reflects the diversity that exists within that food system. And we are not going into leadership position and finding that those in leadership position actually doesn't reflect what our populations look like and doesn't reflect what the people who are producing our food look like. We want them to be part of the decision-making processes as well. Thank you, Jemima. Did Sonia, did you want to add anything to that or shall we? I, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll just add two, three more points fully aligned with everything that Jemima has just um, shared. Uh, in terms of, of evidence, I think one, one point about the lack of evidence around whether women leaders make different decisions is due to the fact that um, there there's just so few women leaders that we can study at this point. And so to try to arrive at something that's statistically significant is really difficult to do. Um, I would also point out that, you know, as, as Jemima had mentioned, it's it's probably not about the some kind of universal characteristic that one gender shares versus another gender. You know, there's plenty of examples currently and through history of, of women who have very little interest in, in advancing kind of fair and just societies. Um, but it's it's much more around that that diversity and and worldviews and experiences and priorities that um, that as Jemima was pointing out, can, can lead to innovative problem solving and, um, and more, more, more representative policies and priorities that come out of these organizations. Thanks. Thank you, Sonia. Okay, let me now go to, uh, I do have a question for, for Martha next. So um, in your remarks, you recommended a blended and integrated approach to food and nutrition security. Can you just expand a bit more on how Global Food 5050 or food system organizations more generally can take such a blended approach moving forward? Oh, you're muted. Yes, you're muted still. Yes. Okay, thanks, Hazel. Let me just 
try again and break this down a little bit. So from the studies that we have done, access to food does not automatically translate to good nutrition. Nutrition and food security approaches are not the same, but are complementary. And while we would look at food security from a perspective of access to food, affordability to food, and sometimes utilization of food at household level, nutrition security goes beyond that to look at the intra-household food distribution and how the diet and the gender dimensions at that point, the health status of women, whether it's a pregnant woman or a child under five years of age, which is referred to as the life stage, influences the needs of that person in terms of food and nutrition security. And so a blended food security and nutrition approach would then offer the most comprehensive and equitable and gender responsive course of action. So as we do these studies, the global food 5050 initiatives need to help us break this down and understand really the drivers of access, affordability, food choices at household level. And some of these have been extensively researched, but the gender issues are skewed towards certain aspects and do not fragment for us how women act as the shock absorbers in times of the conflicts mentioned during the COVID-19 pandemic, during climate-related adversities. And, and the, the initiative may help to reveal culturally ingrained gender inequities, but also program delivery gaps that do not respond to the issues effectively. For example, in the ways we involve men, you, we've seen many reports that say male involvement is important, but we do not want to see horrified men in delivery rooms or antenatal clinics. So then the revelation of what effective interventions have been. Another example is practical gender needs for pregnant adolescent girls different from adult women. The traditional story on access to land and household decision-making dynamics. We have identified, um, we, we need to identify more and explain gender-related challenges, lessons, as well as key entry points for various programs from, from, from this initiative. These gender inequities are influenced by a number of things, including gender norms, social stereotypes, disempowerment of women and girls. But beyond those sweeping statements, we need to break this down to practical things that programs and organizations can do. And gender inequity, equality is a key strategic entry point in the achievement of greater impact if we break this down and understand the gaps well. Thank you for, for those examples, Martha. Um, okay, we have a few questions about the, the report and the methodology, so I think I'll pass this to, to Sonia um, and, and Jemima. Uh, one is about um, the board, comp well, well, maybe let me start with the, the simpler question. One is, the, is, is there, this is a question from Patti Petesh. Um, excellent report. Is there an uh, analysis by sectors? 
and how were decisions made about the food companies on the list? And then a related question is around board composition and are there other important organizational indicators that we're thinking of including in the future? So perhaps, um, okay. yes, do, do you wanna jump in first Jemima, go ahead. Let me take the first the first part by um, of the analysis by sector and how the organizations were determined. I think, um, as I mentioned in my opening remarks to the results, um, both the 2021 and the 2022 report um, use data that is already available from Global Health 5050. And I wanted to answer this and then I'll pass on to Sonia to then talk about how the, the whole list of organizations has been selected. And what we did is Global Health 5050 was already developing the Global Health uh, 5050 um, index. They have a database of close to 200 organizations. And what we wanted to do is look at the data of a subset of those organizations that actually work on food systems. And so what we have done is go into the database of Global Health 5050, get the organizations that work uh, that work at this intersection of health, food, and, um, and, and, and then analyze that subset of organizations. Now, moving forward, Forward, we are using the food systems analytical framework to actually develop a list of the global organizations that work on food systems. So our intention is from 2023 that we will have a much broader range of organizations and we are classifying them uh, or categorizing them based on the food systems analytical framework to look at those that are working on the input side of the food system systems process that are working on the food environment, that are working on consumption and, and, and market, but also those that are supporting uh, food systems, whether from a policy perspective and, and a, technologi a technological perspective or other support uh, organizations to food systems. And so we are actually have a much bigger analytical framework and sampling um, framework for um, subsequent uh, for subsequent reports. Um, the second question on whether we are analyzing this by sector, as you can imagine, when we just have 51 organizations, some of the sectors are not um, very well represented in the in the in the sample but the future and the reason why we are using that food systems analytical framework is to make sure that we can actually analyze uh, by sector that we are actually able to look at whether it's you know what's happening with organizations that are in food processing and consumption and what's happening with organizations that are you know, influence the food environment, what's happening with organizations that are working on the production and value chains part of the food system. So in the future, we will be able to analyze um, this by sector in that way, but also be able to analyze by type of organization, whether it's, it's not, uh, you know, non-governmental organizations, whether it's research organizations, whether it's philanthropies and funders, so that we can also see where we are making progress, where we are not making progress and what kinds of strategies might work for the different sectors so that we can better support um, organizations to make progress. 
Sonia, go ahead. Yeah, um, I, in terms of the, the, um, the organizations that we see in the sample from the private sector, I'll just provide a bit of background in terms of where that the larger sample is drawn for the Global Health 5050 report. Um, and that's, it's, you know, I, it's a group of companies that are, are certainly not necessarily advancing global health let's say, but these are organizations, companies that have stated an interest in global health policy. So they are, it, the, 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 the sample primarily comes from the list of corporate participants in the business and health action group of the Global Business Council. And that was a, an action group that was, that represented business and um, kind of lobbying the, the contours of the health related targets of the SDGs. So these are, are companies that have kind of self-selected as identified as, um, as an interest in influencing global health policy. Um, the other point about sector, um, is, as Jemima said, it's the, the sample is quite small. You can go into the Global Food 5050 Index and, and filter by sector to get a look at, um, at how different sectors are performing. But if, uh, if people are interested in, in some of the, the trends that we find in the global health organizations, our, our, our reports do go through in some depth the differences that we see. And there are some really interesting and important differences in, in representation as well as in policy between some of the sectors. Um, for instance, those, those sectors that wield financial power, the funders um, the, uh, and the private sector companies have much lower representation of women. Um, in their senior management and governing bodies. Um, however, have often have much better gender equality workplace policies. So it's an interesting kind of um, conundrum that we're, we're exploring further. But so I just, I would encourage people to look at the, the, the Global Health 5050 report, which has a larger sample and thus a bit more um, uh, robustness in the comparison across sectors. Thanks. Great, thank, thank you, Sonia. Okay, so I have, um, we are coming to almost to the end. So I think maybe I'll, I'll have one more question. Um, this one to both Maura and Ben. One is around the importance of partnerships um, in, in taking this word forward. Um, uh, Maura, uh, especially you, you, you made the call about having this um, be, be more broadly taken up and the importance of working with partners. How do we make sure that these are not just high level commitments, but are really informing action and practice on the ground? So first Maura and then, and then Ben. Sure. Thanks, Hazel. And yeah, how do we make sure? You know, it's a good question. I know you know, for USAID, one of the things that we have in place that is somewhat impactful, but I think we could even do a better job of it, but is ensuring that in our own internal policies, um, a key part of our programming and how we design it is that we always have uh, a required gender analysis for everything that we do. So in terms of um, our partners that are implementing partners, certainly it's, it's required uh, in the agreements that we have with them based on our policy that you know, they're addressing gender gaps. Um, but I do think that's something we can take a lot further. Um, I guess an example of that, and, and um, one of our uh, speakers was talking earlier about, um, I think it was you, Mega, talking about um, SMEs. And you know, so for an example, you know, if we're working in a country and we're able to do a gender analysis that would identify that a country's SMEs um, tend to be owned and managed by men, 
we could then design programs right to work more more successfully uh, with women owned and operated uh, small businesses. But I think there's a much bigger question of how we we as partners um, on the donor side and how we engage with the private sector, how we engage with host country governments. You know, how do we ensure that a reports like this one are being heard? Um, and that the recommendations that, that come out of that also are, are can be implemented. Um, but so just wanted to share for USAID, like one of the things that we lean on heavily and it's still an excellent tool is the gender analysis. But I have to say that, you know, we, it's a policy that has to be enforced. And then the important part is monitoring it um, all along the way through our, through our programming cycle to ensure that we're, we're being very intentional about it. But thank you, maybe I'll, I'll hand that back over to you now. Thank you. And Ben, any thoughts on this? Yeah, no, in, in terms of partnerships, I mean, it's clear, um, I mean, we're, we're nothing without partnerships, <laughs> at least from, from our perspective. Um, I mean, what kind of influence would we have if we didn't work through partners? Um, I mean, FAU in particular, we're a knowledge organization, we're a specialized agency, you know, we can't buy influence, uh, you know, through our loans or, or through our grants, right? Um, and, uh, and so partnerships is, is the only way that, 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 that we can work. And I also think it's very important just in the sense of diversity, as Jemima was mentioning, because I think partnerships, I mean, working together in partnerships ultimately brings diversity to action and to, to thinking, right? And so I, that's why I think it's central to have the, you know, the multiplicity of, of different points of view um, and thinking. And then, I, and then again, ultimately our partnership is with the member countries uh, that we work with, the public sector, but also very importantly, civil society, civil organizations, producer organizations, et cetera, who are also very active and who also really need, I mean, they need this information, they, they need this technical knowledge and, knowledge and they need this partnership. So, I mean, to me, it's like, I mean, we wouldn't exist or we'd be irrelevant if we, if we didn't have partnerships. Okay, thank you so much, Ben, and to all our panelists for that wonderful discussion. We are now coming to the end of our program, so let me now call on Sarah Hawks, co-founder and co-director of Global Health 5050, to provide closing remarks. Sarah, over to you. Thank you very much, Hazel. Um, and on behalf of um, my co-director, Kent Buse, and uh, the rest of the uh, Global Health 5050 Collective, as well as the Global Food 5050 Collective, I'd like to thank everybody um, on the panel today. And in particular, I'd like to thank our partners at IFPRI and UN Women for um, co-organizing and co-hosting this incredible launch of um, of the global health uh, global food 5050 second report i'd also really like to acknowledge the the great questions that were coming in from the audience um and i was very glad i wasn't sitting on the panel for, for some of them because they were they were really quite spot on and and very very thoughtful set of questions um, so I, I just want to just reflect back on a, a little bit on on what we've heard over the past hour and a half, and um, we've heard a lot about the rigorous process of of the data collection. You might have been surprised by some of the data. Some of it, you'll think, well, I could have predicted that the world is a very unfair place, and if we're measuring inequalities based on gender, we know that we're going to see um, vast inequalities, irrespective of the the sector we're looking at. 
Um, but we've also, in addition to, to, the, to the data itself and the process of collecting the data, we've had a reiteration and, an, and a re-emphasis of the principles and the bedrock on which those data um, exist, i.e. the principle of the universality of human rights. That what we're talking about here is holding to account systems to deliver on the rights of all of us, the right to equality and non-discrimination in our careers, the right to food security and a healthy food environment. And if we don't uphold those rights and hold systems to account for those rights, then we're in a position of discretionary decision-making, which as we see from the data, very frequently results in inequalities suffered particularly by women and girls. But as we also heard, we've heard a lot, as, as I think, you know, I'm a public health professional, I think it's, it's completely natural at this point in a global pandemic to talk about the pandemic and its social and economic crises that we're all living through. But I want to remind us, as, as Ambassador Ferrero did, about the political crises that we're also living in. Now, you know, you can hear from my accent that I'm living in a country that's going through a very particular political crisis with a woman leader at this, this moment. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to leave that to one side for the moment and focus on the, on the political crisis of the gender contestation, the gender equality backlash that we're seeing in many countries. And that, that we're seeing this actually have a really remarkable effect on the ability of the multilateral system to reach agreement in its processes and documentation. For example, in the, in the food security discussions, in the World Health Assembly discussions. And so I, I'm, I'm just flagging that up to, to remind ourselves that whilst we may they all agree on the fine words on paper that even reaching that position of having great words on paper requires understanding and addressing the political context of, of contestation that we currently find ourselves in. So why, do, why are we doing Global Food 50-50? Well, we're doing it because we know that no matter how great those words on paper may finally be, they are nothing if they're not implemented. And the purpose of an accountability mechanism is to ensure that those great words on paper are actually measured and monitored in terms of implementation. And I'd just like to come back very quickly to something that we're now seeing in Global Health 5050, which is that after five years of having this mechanism, we're starting to see impact. For example, it's just one, one piece of impact. We've seen more, a more than 27% increase in the number of organizations that now publish and make transparent and publicly available their gender equality policies for their staff. And I'd like to remind us that that doesn't just come about through publishing an index, that comes about through the internal advocacy of the staff in the organization, but also, and this is represented on the panel here today, through the power held by some of the big player actors in the, in the global health system, some of the, the same actors that are the big powerful actors in the global food system, the people with the power, the organizations with the power to make change happen. 
So as we've heard from, from Maura, from um, Hazel, from Sonia, from Jemima and others, accountability systems can make a difference. We've been challenged today to move beyond that set of core indicators that we've got. We heard very um, articulately from both Mega and um, and Martha, that we need to think more broadly about, about what we envision, what we see as the global food system from, from farm to fork, I think was, was one of the phrases that I've seen used um, in, in the, the, the documents being, um, being published. And we would fully agree with you. This is just, this, this accountability mechanism is just the beginning. It's just, a, it's just showing almost a proof of principle that if we hold systems to account, that it can actually make a positive difference. And it makes a positive difference, not to put too fine a point on it, when we have the resources to do that. And, and also when we work in partnership. So I'd like to just end by saying a huge thanks to all of you for um, participating in all of the time zones represented on, on this call. And I very much look, look forward to working in partnership with all of you as we work for an accountability mechanism that results in positive action. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah, for that summary and for that wonderful call to action. I invite everyone to please check out the full report on globalfood5050.org. Read it, share it, use it, bring it to your senior management, take it to the boardroom. Thank you, thank you to all our program participants and to you, our live audience, for joining us in this very rich discussion on the second Global Food 5050 report. And I also want to acknowledge our wonderful IFPRI communications and public affairs team for their excellent support. Please do join us at our next 2022 Borlaug Dialogue side event on October 20th at 8.15 ET, Accelerated Action for Food Systems Resilience, Egypt's Plan for COP27, and the role of CGIR. And with that, please enjoy the rest of your day. Bye, everybody.